Today, we talk about faith and violence, and I have to tell you that um, it's one of those situations, once again, where I'm, I recognize that uh, I uh, sympathize with this thing you see on the choir, recognize, I mean, on the, on the screen, that I'm preaching to the choir, because the things that I have to say today are things I'm simply reminding us of on behalf of us all. Uh, and, and I'd really direct them to two places. We're continuing in our series on um, dialogue with the skeptic. And so the purpose of this, this series is to try to address some of the questions that arise from those who, who struggle with faith and try to, 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 to address many of the questions that rise up in those struggles. And so we've dealt with a variety of those. And I hope if you've not uh, been with us all along, you'll go back and hear the beginning of the series where we deal with things like questions like doubt and science and politics. And today we, we turn to violence. And, and the, the reason I bring this up for the, the uh, for, for this part of the series is one of the questions that arises uh, from those who struggle with faith is, is the notion of violence and the tendency of, of uh, people of faith, not just Christians, uh, towards violence. And, 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 and that is the rationalization by some that, as I'll share uh, in a few seconds, that, you know, you know for exterminating uh, religion from the world as, as a great hope. Uh, so we'll come back to that. But the other thing I, that motivates me to speak today is that I believe in our time in this moment, um, we have Christians among us who are, uh, like the critics say, being inspired to violence, uh, seeing that their cause is just. And so I have a twofold audience in mind. And uh, for those of you who are in, find yourselves in the choir, because these are not your inspirations, well, then let's just recall these, these things. So be with me in that. Uh, so uh, one of those audiences that I have in mind is this, uh, this group in America who will look a lot like me as I look at my, uh, my social media feeds, I'm seeing an awful lot of folks who are not uh, uh, folks that I would anticipate uh, being in this group, but people that are well off, leaders in their communities that are filling their social media with the rhetoric of civil war and calling themselves patriots and Christians and describing their duty uh, as one that uh, takes back our nation. So uh, that is one of the audiences. And the other audience I want to mention is the group that's represented by, um, uh, well represented by the the work of a of a of a biologist named Richard Dawkins. Richard Dawkins is someone who's well worth reading. Uh, he has uh, all sorts of of, uh, of great works in his field, but he's also written in the uh, as someone who comes to the question of faith as an atheist, and he has been scathing in his attack on religion. And he has one claim that I want to deal with next week. I want to defer until next week when we actually deal with the violence that we see in scripture. And his point is simply that God is the most evil creation humankind has ever made. And that uh, is it, and that uh, the, all the violence you see in the Bible is what uh, causes us to be violent. And so he argues that uh, if only we just get rid of all religions, then we'd get rid of all wars. And that's one of the things I want to address today. Actually, the primary point of, of, of skepticism I'd like to address uh, today is this, this notion that uh, it is our faith that leads us to, um, to 
be violent. Now, uh, on the one hand, I think we need to concede that skeptics like Dawkins have a point. We can look at the history of the church and we can name a litany of violence. You know, the, think about the Crusades. And, and here you see uh, the, the uh, motivational techniques that we had in the Spanish Inquisition uh, in which Jews were forcefully converted to Christianity or killed. And and then we can think of the, the kidnapping and forced baptisms and, and enslavement of millions of Africans under the church's name all over the world, and particularly here in the United States. We can remember the conquest of Latin America uh, and their native lands there, and the Thirty Years' War between Roman Catholics, the War of Roses, uh, the century-long war between um, Roman Catholics and Protestants in Ireland, uh, and the tensions that still uh, persist there. We can remember our own Salem witch hunts. And uh, and then we can think more contemporarily of uh, abortion clinic bombers. And for me, most recently, the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol in which we had uh, folks marching on the Capitol uh, in the name of Jesus and seeing uh, in, with all sorts of banners. And you can you recall the images I've already shown you before of uh, the, the folks praying before they they marched on this on the Capitol. So I think we have to concede the point that there is a problem with Christians and violence. And again, my response, though, is to say, again, your diagnosis is wrong. The problem uh, there is not faith. The problem isn't that faith leads them uh, to it, but 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 another uh, thing is at the root of it. Uh, but there's a problem with the logic that that I wanted to point out that claims that religion causes most wars. Certainly, certainly, uh, faith is a source of dispute at times. But the claim that religion is the cause of most wars uh, is to confuse correlation with causation. It reminds me of a little girl, and I've told you this story before. It's my standard go-to story. Uh, and whenever I see this logical fallacy, you know, the story of the mother who gave her two children uh, each bananas that they could eat, and the elder sister got her banana first and opened it and began to eat. And as soon as she took the first bite, the train they were on entered into a dark tunnel, and she grabbed her little brother as fast as she could. She says, don't eat the banana. It makes you go blind. And then, and, and that just illustrates that there is a problem when we, we uh, don't recognize there's a difference between correlation and causation. A man observed a basketball team that had two redheads. Both of them were a foot taller than all the other non-redheads on the team. His conclusion, having red hair causes you to be taller. There is a difference between correlation and causation. So there's fallacious logic here, but I want to suggest there's also naivete about the human condition. And this is one of the things that we Christians are called to teach the world about the human condition, the reality of sin. We have a doctrine that we call original sin, and the whole purpose is to simply illustrate that we come and to remind the world, remind ourselves that we come from this, this profound situation in which we are, like Cain, vulnerable. Uh, it's the same 
naivete that is underlying one of John Lennon's uh, famous songs. And I know that you guys will know it. And please don't be offended. The fact that I'm a pick on someone who might be your favorite, John Lennon, your favorite Beatle. But he talks, John Lennon, of course, talks about, you know, imagine there are no, no communities. It's hard to do nothing to kill or die for and no religion too. imagine all the people living in peace. Now, what are we to say to John Lennon? Would there be nothing to kill or die for? Would we, in fact, live in peace if there was no religion? I love that tune. But the lyrics strike me as reminiscent of the unexamined claims that I often made when I was in my 20s. I wonder if John Lennon ever read John Steinbeck's masterpiece, East of Eden. East of Eden is based on the Old Testament lesson that we read today, the story of Cain killing Abel. Here you see Rembrandt's rendition of that, uh, one of his wonderful etchings, a story that's real important to us that we don't remember enough, I think. Steinbeck knew it. He knew the story well, and he made it the centerpiece of his masterpiece. He offers us, I think, today an especially important insight into that story of Cain and Abel. But before we get to that, let's recall the highlights of that story. In the story of Adam and Eve, we find the claim that I've mentioned in each of the past few weeks, the claim that the fundamental human condition arising from our nature as free and finite creatures includes a temptation, a vertical temptation, the temptation for us to be estranged from God, to be alienated from God. And in the story of Abel and Cain, that plot thickens. We see that happening, but we also discover that the nature of our humanity also includes not just a vertical temptation, but a horizontal temptation. In our lives east of Eden, we are tempted to be estranged from our brothers and sisters. Alienation from God and alienation from our sister All humans are tempted towards both. That's the story of Cain and Abel. That's the story of Adam and Eve. And the story shows, I think, why John Lennon got it wrong. Faith is not the cause of our violence. Faith is the cure for our violence. Notice that the story doesn't tell us why God favored Abel's gift more on that particular day. Rather, the focus is on God's action and Cain's reaction. God favors one gift, and the other feels that tension of feeling forgotten, rejected, abandoned, threatened. Cain responds with depression and also resentment, resentment that he directs horizontally straight at his brother. But God knows Cain's heart. And so he reminds Cain in verse 7 that he has a choice. He has a choice about he respond how how about how he responds. If you do well, will you not be accepted? And then God issues a warning, a caution. And if you don't do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you. You must master it. This is such a helpful thing for me to remember is I am filled at times with resentment. Now, today we're going to be talking about 
more communal concerns, our communal tendencies towards violence. But the things we're talking about, I hope that you'll also hear at a double level. It's also true about our interpersonal relationships. Resentment is there. Sin lurks at the door and we have a choice in how we respond. This leads us to John Steinbeck's insight. In, in East of Eden, his book, one of us, one of his characters is a Chinese housekeeper named Lee. And uh, Lee draws attention to those words that, that say, you must master it. The King James Version of the Bible translates, thou shalt master it, as though Cain is predestined to master the temptation lurking at his door. Lee looked it up in the American Standard Version of the Bible, which is before the Dead Sea Scrolls came out, and he found it translated it as, do thou master it, as though God is commanding Cain to master his temptation. But Lee studied the Hebrew, and he discovered something wonderful. He discovered that the original Hebrew has this sense in, in the word, in the word timshel, which means thou mayest master it. You have the possibility of master it. You can master it. You ought to master it because you have the capacity to do so. Thou mayest. Thou mayest. Not you will master your temptation, not you must master your temptation, but you may master your temptation. In other words, you have an alternative to giving traction to your resentment. In other words, Cain, you have a choice in how you respond when I bless your brother. You may conquer your temptation toward resentment. Sin lurks near, but it's not your destiny. You have an alternative. This, my friends, is the word that God also spoke from the cross. It's God's word to us. Sin and its consequences need not determine our destiny. When we see that God has blessed our brothers and sisters and we ourselves therefore feel forsaken, abandoned, rejected, or threatened, we have an alternative to that resentment. We can choose to let God's word of reconciliation reign in our hearts and, and, and be patient and wait for those blessings to be more visible to us, or we can choose to surrender to temptation. Now, with Cain and Abel in mind, let's think about faith in war. Even if faith is not the cause of our violence, we ought to ask how our Christianity might inform how we think about our violence. That may be challenging for some of us, especially if you, like myself, are a veteran and have a loved one who's gone in harm's way on behalf of our country. You may see it's unthinkable for me to ask you to qualify your own loyalty to America in terms of your Christian convictions. Well, if that describes you, understand where I'm coming from. I understand where you're coming from. Uh, and I, I hope you'll give me the space to speak about this. I was brought up to think that way, too. Yet as a Christian ethicist, I must ask, how do you think about America's propensity for war? How do you judge if a, if a war is okay or not? And I say this quite clearly because there are parts of our Christian community here in the United States who tend to endorse war, the wars of the Republican president or the Democratic president, no matter which whether it is just or not. There are some for whom the question is real simple. I bleed red, white, and blue. And if my country calls me to war, then where do I sign up? 
duty, honor, country. That was ingrained in me at the Naval Academy. I believe in those words. I think those are important values. And I confess that's how I thought about war when I left home for Annapolis and I joined the submarine force. I am a patriotic American. And when I was a young man, that's all I needed to know to volunteer for any war that my country called me to do to. But in contrast, many thinking people learned to think about war in terms of what's known as just war criteria. For example, many baby boomers distinguish between World War II and Vietnam. World War II was just because we were attacked by the Japanese, one might say, and it seems right to go to war in self-defense. Others might point to the Holocaust and justify our bombing of Germany, our, our uh, uh, just incredible bombing of Germany. Uh, even though we went to, German, went to war with Germany before we knew about the Holocaust. I'm oversimplifying here in order to illustrate that just war criteria were discerned by the medieval church in order to help Christians discern what their response should be when the nations uh, call the people to wage war. In this view, in this teaching, Christians are not to offer unqualified support for the nation's wars, but are to discern whether or not such support is warranted on the basis of whether or not the war is just. And that's what we do when we distinguish between the World War II and, and Vietnam. Now, imagine a checklist by which we identify circumstances in which we are loving our neighbors best by delivering them from evil that threatens them. For example, just as a Christian might claim that he's justified in using violence in order to protect his wife or child from assault, a Christian might claim that we are justified in waging war in order to halt genocide in Rwanda or to respond to an attack on the World Trade Towers or to resort to violence to obtain the free and equal and exact justice for former enslaved peoples, or to resist a perceived threat in our country to take away cherished freedoms by self-named Christian patriots. This all can seem quite reasonable to us. After all, who would argue with the claim that we ought not just sit here and let maniacs murder innocents? The basic view of the just war perspective is that it would be nice to wage peace, but at times, in order to be effective in saving the innocents, we have to wage war. We have no other alternative. And so we call our youth to service and we help them to see that it may be necessary for them to sacrifice their lives for their country. And we celebrate and pledge never to forget those who do. Just War thinking has a long tradition within Christianity, going all the way back to the Crusades. And it certainly is more morally sensitive than the blind loyalty to our government that I had as a youth. But I ask us to wrestle with some potential difficulties with us, with it. And the first one of those is this. The justice that just war thinking seeks is always dimly seen as through a glass darkly. It's not all that clear to us. There are some things that we, that are, are yet unseen as our epistle uh, to the Hebrews mentions today. 
All too often, justice is whatever the group with the most power says it is. And so the justice seeking that justifies our wars all too often looks like Cain and Abel, the the elimination into nothingness of the weaker, so that the claims of the more powerful are justified. To the younger mother, the young mother with a babe on her hip and no food to feed her children because of the tanks and bombs and missiles that transformed them into refugees, well, claims that our violence is morally justified ring hollow. The second concern is this. A culture which intentionally teaches its children that they honor God or 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 they gain honor by for themselves by sacrificing their lives for the country lives precipitously on the edge of becoming an imperial cult like Rome or like ancient Israel did. The difference would be that instead of offering a blemish free bull for sacrifice, we'd be offering our own children. That may not be a problem for some, but for Christians, I think it ought to raise questions about whether our sacrifices actually glorify God or please God, even when we justify the blood that we spill by saying war is our only option. The third concern is this. If we really believe that Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for the salvation of the whole world, then why would we think it's necessary for us to sacrifice our young men and women in order to save the world. This is the doctrine of American exceptionalism, exceptionalism, a a false doctrine that, that we need as Christians to critique. This idea that we American Christians are especially um, uh, linked in, in, in some way in the line of a, a role with that of the Messiah, seeing it as our role to save the world, and that we have been specially designated in history to be the leaders in saving the world, seeing it as our role to make the world turn out right, and, and, and confusing our participation in war with our participation in Christ. That's the doctrine of American exceptionalism. And it's, it's just a, our way of expressing our own idolatry. And so uh, another concern, um, because no, we are not a messianic nation. We are a blessed nation, one among many, a nation that's full of great strengths and and also some profound weaknesses that we are seeking to cure. I mention all these concerns because the church, I believe, has a role to play in our nation. We Christians individually and, 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 and corporately have a role to play in our nation. And that role is to speak to speak the prophetic word we have received about the reality of the world. It's it's not the task of our nation to make the world turn out right. We believe that God has already done that and is doing that here and now. That's the very meaning of the cross and resurrection. God has defeated evil and death, a victory in Christ that is present and manifest as the kingdom of God. That's what we've been given to proclaim. The reality of the kingdom of God means that America need not and must not see itself as a messianic nation. America is greatest when it is the servant of all and not the master. 
For as Christians, it's good for us to remember that the task of Christians is not to make the world turn out right either. Our task is simply to be faithful. In the times when we are tempted towards violence, being faithful mostly means being patient as we trust in God, living together as a people quick to forgive precisely because we ourselves are forgiven. Patience is a key virtue because our living together in Eucharistic nonviolence is itself the alternative that God has given us to violence. Living together, sharing our bread, teaching the world that there is enough to go around, that's the alternative. And the world doesn't recognize this alternative unless we ourselves embody it. Our task is not to make the world turn out right because that's God's role. Our task is to be that faithful alternative to violence so that the world knows, as God reminded Cain, that we always have a choice. We always have a choice, no matter how dimly we see it. As God taught Cain, violence is always a failure of imagination. But sometimes our imagination does fail us. What are we to do then? One thing we ought not do, lest we regress into a sacrificial cult, is to justify our violence by claiming that the evil we halt or avert justifies our own violence in the eyes of God. Whether we're doing this again in, in, at the nation state level, at the community level, or in our own homes justifying our violence by saying that it's averting some kind of injustice. If our imagination fails us as we turn to violence as our last resort, we must remain truthful, naming our violence as evil and as tragic, and then relying on God's mercy as we stand before him. That's what the great 20th century prophet Diedrich Bonhoeffer taught us. You may know the story of Bonhoeffer. I share it an awful lot. Bonhoeffer was executed for his role in the plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Bonhoeffer wrote of his struggles to reconcile his sense that stopping Hitler was the right thing to do with the knowledge that his action would make him responsible for murder. Ultimately, Bonhoeffer recognized that Hitler's evils could not justify his own. And he concluded that Violence is never justified. You can't be a Christian and read scripture and then conclude that our violence is justified. It's never just. One evil never justifies another. But he could imagine no other way. So he took part in the plot to assassinate Hitler, but he named his action as sin. And he said, I do this knowing it is sin and relying on God's mercy alone because I can see no other way. As we think about faith in violence, Bonhoeffer has a lot, I think, to teach us. When our nation wages war, let's not pretend that the fate of the world hangs in the balance. For we Christians claim the victory of Christ has already saved the world. And let's not pretend that a holy crusade today is our only alternative, which I'm hearing many of my old alumni from the Naval Academy say today. Because the cross teaches us that God's way of dealing with evil is by 
by being willing to suffer any loss or seeming defeat for the sake of reconciling the world to God. We Christians who follow Jesus, the Messiah, are called to be that alternative. Rather, brothers and sisters, let's name our war making what it is, our own tragic failure of imagination. And let's pray for all of those lives that are disrupted as we rely upon God's mercy to deliver us from those consequences. There's a movement among black intellectuals here in our country that turns its back on Martin Luther King's commitment to this Christian nonviolent approach that I've been describing. I hope you recognize that what I've been describing is actually something that he reminded us of. This approach that he took to demanding of our country, our recommitment to what Lyndon Johnson called full and exact and equal justice. And this group of black intellectuals are claiming it's time for violence in the streets. Now, there's also a movement in our country, as I mentioned at the beginning, to take back our nation with violence. Take it back from those whom, in pursuit of that full and exact and equal justice are pursuing policies that the self-proclaimed white Christian patriots see as an attack on their individual freedoms. They're taking away their freedoms in order to give these other guys justice, and we can't let them take away our freedom. That's basically the rhetoric. Each movement encourages us to lose our patience. Each group, like Cain, recruits folks who were boiling over with resentment feeling the tension of feeling forgotten, rejected, abandoned, threatened. And each group says that they see no choice but to resort to violence to obtain the security that they desire. If only they could imagine, it isn't hard to do. On April 7th, 1994, a plane carried the presidents of Rwanda and Burundi, and it was shot down. And the next day, the Rwandan genocide began. In 100 days, I want you to hear this number, 800,000 Tutsis and moderate Hutus were slaughtered. They were slaughtered by Hutu militias and ordinary Rwandans. A 16-year-old girl was not home that day because her family sent her away to get milk from the place where they grazed their cows. When she returned home, she discovered that every member of her family was dead. In all, 12 of her family members were hacked to death with machetes and swords. She fled to the fields and hid there, and then ultimately left for neighboring Burundi to survive what became the Rwandan genocide. One of her Hutu neighbors named Asiri formed at the village center and then went with the mob house to house, massacring any Tutsu that, that they could find. Me, I used a machete, he said. I went to hunt for the Tutsis so that we can kill them because the government told us that they were enemies so that they should be killed. One day, his group killed seven people. He and about 200 other men in his village formed up and killed their victims with different weapons, swords, machetes, and even Rwandan traditional spears. 
And this is the result of that. This image I'm, I'm putting up for you is the, the image of, the, of those folks who fled. I don't want to give you any of the graphic violence that arose from that, but just imagine these people here on the, as refugees carrying water miles and miles, fleeing the ravages of war. Hard for them to see the justice in any of this. Well, the thing I wanted to tell you is that today, that young girl is now a grown woman, and she lives right next door to Aziri, the Hutsu neighbor who slaughtered her family. They live in a village consisting entirely of the victims of that genocide and those who slaughtered their families, a place that in, in Rwanda is called Reconciliation Village, which was started by an Anglican priest after meditating upon the meaning of, a, of the cross. The path to forgiveness was not easy, residents say. I didn't think I could forgive, Mukamana says, until I heard that priest's message. Now, that girl is fond of elderly Atsiri. She often stops by his house to chat. Residents say their ability to forgive is rooted in Christian beliefs. These people killed my parents the Rwandan woman said, it's not easy for me to forgive them, but God forgave. I must do the same. Forgiveness, reconciliation, the space to flourish, the foolishness on the cross we are called to preach. The sin of violence against our brother need not be our destiny. Thou mayest. Faith is not the cause of our violence. Faith, my brothers and sisters, is the cure. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.